0: Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman.
2: What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime and tonight we bring you a special series surviving my biggest case this is the story of how the real walter white from the hit tv show breaking bad was caught back in 1984 authorities arrested daryl calvin smith Uh, he was arrested along with his wife denise in las vegas Interestingly, he was a 1978 graduate of the Emory School of Medicine and also of Emory's Oxford College back in 1973. He was using his home as a drug laboratory to turn out millions and millions of dollars worth of amphetamines and here to tell us about how we survived this big case, our best guest. Steve Peterson was a senior special agent of the United States Department of Justice, the Drug Enforcement Administration, otherwise known as the DEA, for nearly three decades. And at the time of his retirement, was the most senior DEA street agent in the world. He's now a South Carolina private investigator working for Stephen Smith's family. He had done that. Uh, He was just featured in the Netflix series about the Murdoch murders. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it very much. So uh, before we break this story down, uh, you were a DEA street agent. Uh, before we go any further, what does that even mean being a DEA street agent?
4: Uh, it means I was the oldest guy with DEA working the street, <laughs> working undercover, working investigations. I was in a non-supervisory role. So I wasn't one of the bosses, I was just a, a grunt, like the majority of DEA agents out there. And uh, what
2: year? Because uh, you you know you look like a young man. This 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 happened back in '84. This story. What year did you start working for the DEA? And uh, what were you doing when you first got into the agency?
4: Well, I actually first started working for DEA while I was in college. Oh. Um, DEA had a like an internship program with my college, with Northeastern University in Boston and that's why i selected northeastern to to go to college i wanted to be a dea agent so i worked for dea beginning in 81 1981 as a as an intern and i worked in new york city as a dispatcher it's a, it's called a base operator but it's the same thing as a dispatcher except we don't like direct agents to calls we just kind of coordinate uh surveillance uh, audio traffic. We run tags. We pass along information. We we gather intelligence and pass it back to the guys actually on the street. So I did that. And um, and then when I came back as an intern the next year, uh, because with Northeastern a program, if you worked on the job for six months, go to school for six months, your employer would actually give you a grade. You'd be graded. That would go towards your GPA. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the next six months, I came back with DEA. Was I was invited back to New York, but I I did not choose that. I actually worked for DEA Boston. Figured I already lived there. That's where I'm from. Might as well stay there. It's a lot cheaper for me. So I stayed in Boston. And actually, back then, it's much different than it is today. I don't even know if we have an internship program anymore. But um, we, we actually went out on the street. We rode around with guys. We actually did stuff. Now we we weren't armed, so we would stay in the car and and that kind of stuff. But uh, but we would go in the houses. We'd, we'd participate in actually enforcement activities. It was an absolute blast. And then um, I, when I graduated college, less than nine days after taking my final exam, I was at the DEA Academy at the uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in South Georgia. Back then, DEA's Academy was down at, at Fletsy. And 1985, we moved up to Quantico with our sisters in the bureau. But back when I went through, it was in South Georgia. And I'm
2: I'm 53 years
4: old. I still don't
2: know what I want to do when I grow up. How did you know this in college? Was there something that that uh, triggered this desire to, to get drugs yeah. off the streets?
4: Yeah, well, I wanted to be a cop, but I didn't want to be a street cop. I didn't want to write tickets and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to be a detective, an investigator. And my uncle, back in the day, was a customs inspector in Miami, mm. and he was a great guy. He was a funny guy, and he often told me, "If you're going to be a cop, go Fed. Be a Fed because they get paid a lot more." Now the downside is you can get transferred anywhere in the country, but you will get, you know, you'll get paid more. So he convinced me of that. And he also said, "If you're going to be, a, if you're going to be an agent, be a DEA agent." He, he stressed the greatest agency in the world, and he didn't even work for them. So mm. I took his advice, and that's what I pursued, and I, I was I was blessed that uh, I was able to get on.
2: Well, being a, being a customs agent in Miami, that's a whole other show, I'm sure. Uh, it's, well, it's,
4: of- it's funny. He told a story. and made a big marijuana seizure off a ship uh, at Customs did, and he and his partner were out there kind of cleaning up afterwards. They were sweeping up all the marijuana residue. They got all these seeds, then they planted them around the US Customs House in Miami at night. And a few weeks later, all this marijuana started growing up outside the customs house. Nobody could figure out where it came from or what happened. So I was like, that's Yep, a, that's my family.
2: Yeah. That's a great that's a great story. So um uh, back in the early eighties when you uh first started your uh long career with the DEA, what was I mean, it's it's I guess cyclical or it's <clears throat> excuse me, always changing, but what was, you know, the major drug that you guys were trying to go? Was there, was there a single drug that you were going after?
4: Well, cocaine was big. Methamphetamine, in the South, it was big because we used to call meth. I got st- uh, I I stationed in Atlanta. And uh, for a Bostonian to go to Atlanta, that was a huge culture shock for me back in the early 80s. Um, but in, in the South, methamphetamine was very common. Uh, we called it a poor man's cocaine because it was cheaper than Coke. And it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that crack came on the scene. So, um, you know, we didn't really encounter much crack back in the early 80s. It was primarily just was Coke and meth and and huge quantities of marijuana. I mean, tons. And so once
2: you uh, went through the academy, you did all that, then you're uh, issued, I guess, a uh, a, a, a work uh, firearm. Right. And, uh, yes.
5: mm-hmm.
2: what, what was, uh, like, what was a typical day? Like for you? I mean, were you just always undercover? Um, were you always, you no, know,
4: you, you know, it was funny because when I got sent to Atlanta, um, Atlanta at the time was a real small office today, it's May. It's a massive, huge office, but back in 83, when I arrived, there were maybe five or six, seasoned guys like myself now. There were five or six senior guys. And there was, because we had a huge hiring push back then, uh, there was like 10 of us brand new guys came out of nowhere. Some arrived before me, some arrived after me. And my best friend at the academy, he actually graduated number one. And if you graduate number one at the DEA academy, you can choose wherever you want to go. So he chose, he was actually state, uh, he was sent to Charleston. He was from Long Island and, uh, he got sent to Charleston, South Carolina, but he chose not to go to Charleston. He said, I want to go to Atlanta. I want to go to a bigger city. And then Steve and I worked together. We become very good friends. And sadly in 1987, he was murdered on this job by, uh, by Mexican traffickers by, uh, yeah. So that's a whole nother podcast. Well, we were down there working together. We were the blind leading the blind. We partnered up, the two of us. We didn't have a senior partner back then. There weren't enough senior partners to go around. So, I mean, we just laughed every day. We did a lot of undercover work together, probably all wrong because we didn't know any better. And it's it's by the grace of God, we survived as long as we did, quite honestly. And then later on in in 84, uh, I finally was assigned a senior partner. They broke Ray and I up, and uh, I got assigned to what we called DEA SEO three eighty three. That is code for DEA's Special Enforcement Operation number three eighty three. I don't know what the other three hundred eighty two were. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but ours was three eighty three, and what that was was a a storefront. It was an actual business in a strip mall on the east side of Atlanta uh, set up as a chemical company, and we sold glassware and chemicals to criminals, and this is before Al Gore invented the internet, so we would have to advertise in like biker magazines, high-time magazines, that kind of stuff.
2: Wow. So and- that's fascinating. So you guys had an actual storefront selling glassware that they would use like in meth labs and stuff. So they yeah. would, they would have to come to you.
4: Yeah. Glassware cool. and and chemicals. And we would, we would charge five times more than the legitimate cost. We'd give them horrible service. We'd never give them receipts. So <laughs> legitimate people would never come to us because we were idiots. And so that kind of drove more of the criminal element towards us. And, and- so do you actually worked in this store? Do you remember the name of the store by any chance? Uh, you know, funny, I don't remember the name. We, it, we changed <laughs> names kind of frequently. Um, yeah. Because as soon as we'd make an arrest, our cover yeah. was blown. We moved a couple times, but we changed our name even more frequently.
2: And so, you actually, like, you would, like, ring up the register, whatever you do in the store, you'd actually
4: work there? Yeah. if so, if so, pe- Most of the people would come in, place an order or whatever, We'd, we'd, we'd meet them at the counter, we'd, we'd treat them like dirt, we'd take their information, you know, and uh, we'd place an order for them, we'd take their, we only accepted cash, we wouldn't take cards, see, uh-huh. so, you know, that prompted yeah. more criminal activity, because drug dealers only deal in cash, so we encouraged that type of clientele, and, that, and that's what came to us.
2: Would you ever get like the old lady who's just looking for like a uh, uh, like a bowl to like make food in or something?
4: Well, you'd get a couple of innocent people every now and then come in and try <laughs> to buy something. We, you know, you could pretty much size them up and realize, you know, listen, pal, this is not where you want to be. Go away. We just treat them like dirt, and they yeah. would, they would leave. <laughs> we would just insult them, and I mean, it was kind of fun, you know.
2: And then. So- if you weren't, if you were only dealing in cash, let's say a bad guy would come in, how would you then track them? They would just give you the cash and walk out. Was someone following them?
4: Well, it depended on what they ordered. We would, yes, we would set up a surveillance. We would, uh, uh, we would look at what they purchased. Was it equipment? Was it glassware? If it was equipment, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you, today's methamphetamine manufacturing is different than back in the eighties. In in, in, in the eighties, Methamphetamine was manufactured primarily in the same way you saw it on Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. That's a fairly accurate representation, other than the fact that TV, was it was blue. But, but that's a fairly accurate representation of how meth was made. When the internet came about, it changed everything because people started getting into ephedrine and pseudoephedrine, you know, cold remedies that they could buy at Sam's Club or Walmart and convert it to methamphetamine required a lot less work a lot less knowledge and a lot less chemicals so that completely changed things your big super labs that exist down in say mexico today that produce thousands of pounds they do it the old-fashioned way mm. they don't do it the ephedrine reduction method they don't do it that way but locally u.s uh, domestically that's the typical way it's done now by utilizing uh, cold remedies and does the DEA have a good idea where
2: these kind of super labs, as you said, are located in Mexico? Do they, they have an um, idea? They
4: move it constantly because nobody enforces anything. But uh, when we do locate them, yeah, we try to couple with our our foreign counterparts. But, you know, it's a lot of corruption down there. And, yeah. you know, they'll tell you we're doing something. And, and occasionally they do do it and they do a good job. Uh, but more frequently than not, the they make a seizure but everybody gets away. Everybody escapes. They don't arrest anybody. They just make this easier. And the cartels, they realize that this is the price they pay. They, they let a load or two go in order to preserve the entire organization.
2: Uh, So you mentioned breaking bad. And uh, so we're about to get to, what do you think? I I assume you watched the, uh, the show. I'm not a big TV watcher, but I watched breaking
4: bad. I thought it was a phenomenal show. Uh, Did, did you watch it? I didn't watch it until I retired. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to watch the show while I was still on a job. I'm not a big proponent of glamorizing criminal activity, so I didn't want to watch it. And then once I started, dude, I couldn't stop. You know, I was kind of addicted. We my wife and I binged it for weeks. Yeah. You know, until we watched all whatever 8 6 or 8 years of it, whatever it was again.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a great show. So, mm-hmm. it's based on a character Walter White who's uh like a science teacher gone bad, hence the name right. Breaking Bad. Uh but the real guy is a guy, Daryl Calvin Smith.
4: Who was this guy? Well, you've done your homework, Joel. Once again, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, as you've already stated, Daryl was a—he uh, was a medical student. So I don't—I'm not sure how the best way to tell the story. Should I tell the story from our perspective, how we learned it, or yes. I tell it in real time as to what happened and then how we got involved?
2: Uh... You know yeah. Uh, however you feel, uh,
4: I don't know. However you feel, uh, best telling it. Just All go right. for it. Go for it. Well, let's 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 do it in real time, and then I can interject when DEA gets involved. Okay. Like now, Derek goes to medical school in the '70s, mm-hmm. and in in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, at Emory, and he's a student at the medical school. And he also rode a Harley. He rode a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. I don't know what year it was. It doesn't matter. But back in the 70s, they broke down all the time. So old Daryl breaks down on the side of I-85 between Atlanta and, say, Alabama, somewhere down the Columbus, Georgia area, down in that potted state. So he breaks down on the side of the interstate, and he's trying to fix his bike. And another biker pulls up and stops and offers assistance. And between the two of them, they get it running. Now Daryl's a medical student. He's real nerdy, young kid, and uh, the person who stops, the the biker who stops, is actually a member of the motorcycle gang, the Outlaws, but he's not wearing colors, so you wouldn't know it. You would just think he's another Harley rider. Doesn't have his. He's not wearing his his uh, vest or colors. So they talk a bunch of small talk, and he tells Daryl, or Daryl tells him how he's a medical student, this, that, and the other, and. They're there for an hour or two on the side of the road, and as all conversations with complete strangers evolve, the the conversation turned to manufacturing methamphetamine. You probably encountered that at the grocery store while you were waiting in line. You
2: know. Well, this guy from uh, what was it? What was it, the motorcycle gang the Outlaws? Did you say? The Outlaws. Yeah. The so outlaw. he obviously uh, saw a big opportunity with a medical school student. But what? What? So what year is this now? This is. This
4: is probably. This is in the 70s. Maybe 70s. 76. Okay. somewhere, like that, somewhere in so, the year 75, 76, maybe even even a little earlier,
2: but it's and, and his ar- his arrest ultimately was 84. So this is almost not a decade, but like maybe yeah. 8 years yeah. before. Yeah. So yeah. so this member of the Outlaws gang stops to help this guy. This guy has no idea is a member of a gang and turns to meth. So
4: Yeah. So they exchange phone numbers when they fix the bike and get ready to leave. And of course, again, this is before cell phones. I know it's hard for the audience to understand that, but we didn't have cell phones back then. And uh, so they exchange phone numbers, and Daryl gives him his real number, and the biker gives Daryl a bogus number, it's totally fake. <laughs> so about once a month or so, the biker calls Daryl at home and says, "Hey, remember me? I'm the biker. I don't remember what his name was. I'm the biker." Do uh, you give it any thought to what we talked about? Do you give it any thought to making meth? Do you give it any thought? You know, and Daryl's like, no, I'm not into that. No, I don't want to do that. No. And Daryl is poor. I mean, he's living in a rental house. He's renting a room at a house in the w- eastern part of Atlanta. Not a great area. Just, you know, he's 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 eating macaroni and cheese and ramen noodles, if they made them back then. You know, I mean, he's a, a, a medical student who is barely getting by. and. That kind of pushes him. And he, one day he's like, well, you know, how hard would it be? So he steals a bunch of crap from Emory, steals <laughs> equipment and chemicals from Emory University, goes back to his rental house, and he makes meth. And he almost burned his house down. But uh, he lit, the, he caught on fire, a little explosion, and uh, he almost burned his house up, but he made meth. And he was like, you know, now that I got the process down, I've got to work on a few bugs perhaps, but I could do this. And then a biker calls back, hey, given any thought? And Daryl says, well, how much money could I make? Mm-hmm. There's the hook. Wow. Right wow. Now he's got him on the hook. So it starts off a couple ounces, a little bit of dope, a little bit of dope, a little bit of dope. And over the next decade or so, he's making 50, 60, 70 kilos at a cook. I mean, he's making, he's putting out and he's moving his location from the rental house to another rental house to another place.
2: So he goes he goes all in and he, he's doing this uh like in conjunction with the outlaws gang?
4: Well he's making it for them, yes. Okay, yes. and okay, and now well, he's he finishes medical school, gets a degree. Mm. He could practice medicine, but he never does. Instead, he tells everybody he's a professional gambler, and mm. this again, prior to the internet, prior to all this poker tournaments. He would he would pose as a professional gambler now he would go to Vegas he met his wife in England she is a model and she's a, she was a, um, a resident she was a, a, a non-citizen at the time she was in, in the UK and she and they got married and uh, he would go to all these tournaments and lose money but he would claim to always be the winner and occasionally he would win but more often than not he lost but he would go to the local trophy shop on the other side of town and buy his own trophies he would have these monster trophies made up with his name and put them in a big curio cabinet in his house so if the neighbors or anybody came over oh yes i won you know a bazillion dollars and this and that it's all it's all bull it's all scam
2: Real quick before before we go any further, just because I'm one of them, is meth like what is when you take meth? What does it do to you? Is it is it an upper? It,
4: yes, yeah, it's it's an upper. Methamphetamine, amphetamine is is speed. Mm-hmm. Methamphetamine is typically five times more pot or fifteen times more potent than amphetamine. So mm-hmm. meth meaning greater the the prefix meaning greater. Methamphetamine is more powerful amphetamine. So when you take it, cocaine is a is an upper. Cocaine is a stimulant. Methamphetamine is a stimulant. They're both two. Uh, they're both uh, scheduled two drugs, which means there's some legitimate use, medical use. Um, cocaine is used medically, believe it or not, in a variety of surgeries. If you have uh, eye surgery. They'll have an ophthalmic solution with a cocaine mixture. Now, they don't send one of the nurses out to the hood to buy crack and come down in the operating room. It doesn't work like that. But, you know, there are legitimate uses for pharmaceutical cocaine in a variety of medical uh, procedures. And methamphetamine is no different. It's used. It was used a lot in the weight loss world, people using weight loss pills. Initially, they were primarily amphetamines, methamphetamines until they became very addictive. People became dependent on them. So they eventually made them Schedule two, which is a, a much more difficult drug to get.
2: And um, was meth as big then as it is now, bigger? Uh, how did at
4: it the compare? Time, no, back in the 70s, no. It was primarily run by the bikers and used in the trucking industry, because long-haul truckers would take meth to stay awake, to drive across country. Um, And it gained in popularity primarily, I believe, primarily after the Internet came out and there were alternative ways of manufacturing because Mm -hmm. the Breaking Bad methods required specific chemicals that are not easily obtained. And DEA controlled them and watched them, Mm -hmm. um, which is what we did at the store, you know. So we would also Uh, liaison with other chemical companies in case they had suspicious purchasers they were calling. So uh, this guy,
2: uh, Daryl Calvin Smith, he would go to Vegas, pretend he's a professional gambler. He'd lose, but buy himself the trophy. And did he end up staying out in Vegas or does he come back to the? No,
4: no, he lives in Atlanta. He stayed in Atlanta. Okay. He would just travel to Vegas and England to gamble.
2: Because he was ultimately arrested in Vegas.
5: But right, uh, right. Okay. Well, what
4: he did is he bought a, a multi million dollar home in a gated community in the north side of town and he lived there. All right. So but let's let's go back a little bit. Let's go back. Yeah, yeah. So so Daryl comes in to the to uh comes to a local chemical company and orders. At this point, he's making he's manufacturing at a good scale. He orders 15 55-gallon drums of ether. Now, ether is a common solvent used <laughs> in the manufacture, not only of meth, but also of coke and some other things. It's used to kind of wash out a lot of the impurities in the final product. But, but ether is a very popular drug, uh, chemical. Ether is not illegal to possess. But when you buy 15 55-gallon drums, it, you know it's not like you're just... Cleaning your lawn more carburetor. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, but again, it's uh it's a different time. There is no Amazon, it's not easily tracked digitally. So, right? right. I mean and, right. So oh, yeah. he probably paid he probably paid cash for it, right? Yes. So, yeah. So but did you guys were you flagged
4: when that purchase was made? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the first thing we did was we did some background work on on Daryl. We realized he doesn't have any legitimate use for this. He doesn't own a chemical. I mean, this is something you would have in an industrial facility, you know, this quantity of of, of of ether. So there was one chemical company up in New Jersey. I can't remember the name of it. But they manufactured literally almost all the ether used domestically. And they had blue 55-gallon barrels that the ether would come in with their logo on it. But they were blue. And uh, so we asked the chemical company for an empty barrel. They gave us one of their empty blue barrels. And we put in it, we loaded it with batteries, we put a, tr- a beeper in it. Now this is before GPS systems. There was no global positioning satellites back then. right? So you had to do this line of sight. We used to drive a car with all these antennas on a roof, look like radio free Europe going down the road. You have all these antennas sticking up out of the roof. And and you would watch it on a screen. It looked like Pac-Man. You'd follow the little dots, waka, 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 waka. And you would know, okay, now we can turn left. I mean, it was, at the time, it was like state of the art. But looking back now, it was like Fred Flintstone kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we put a beeper in one of the barrels. We shipped it back to New Jersey. Um, they filled like the last five gallons with actual ether in it. So if he took the lid off, there was ether in the bottle. In the barrel and because of the weight of the batteries it made it about the same weight as the actual ether so when he came to make the purchase he was driving a specific vehicle a van Uh, and when he came to pick up the the chemical when they came in he drove a u-haul truck because you got to put all these things on it you can't put them in a van not 15 55 gallons so it shows up in a u-haul and he hauls them away. Well, of course, we're following, and we got Radio Free Europe following behind, and we're following Hackman as he goes. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes to a mini warehouse, and he puts everything in a mini warehouse. And we would later learn that every time he purchased any chemicals, he always purchased in bulk, like he's going to Costco. He would always purchase in bulk, and he would leave it in a warehouse for anywhere from a year to, to 18 months because he knew – the DEA puts beepers in things, and the beepers only last so long based on the batteries. Smart. So he puts it in a Winnie warehouse, and we're we're constantly checking to make sure the beeper doesn't move. The beeper's there. We put a we put a pinhole camera from another warehouse that we rented, pointed at his door in the mini warehouse, so we could watch to see if he came and left or whatever. And eventually, our beeper dies. The batteries just go. The beeper dies. So we're like, well, crap. How are we going to know if he moves now? So we had to get a search warrant to break into his mini warehouse at night, remove one of the barrels, because we didn't know which one was ours. We just removed a random barrel and replaced it with a fresh barrel that had fresh batteries in it. Mm. Then we had to to figure out a way to make it look like it's been sitting in there for a year and a half with dust and cobwebs. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's kind of comical looking back. But at the time, we were just like, this is, I mean, getting a, a search warrant to break in and, because by yeah. law, search warrant, you have to leave a copy there. You have to alert alert the owner of the property that you served a warrant. We're getting all these things under seal,
5: yeah, which is
4: wow. at the time. Wow, wow. You know, What's this that? is all like cutting-edge law stuff. Mm-hmm. So we replaced them anywhere. We placed the barrel and the thing, and uh, we begin watching them. We began, and uh, so if I'm not working at, we eventually closed the store down. It became too well known. Then it became other liabilities associated with storing chemicals there and all these other things. So eventually, this we were the last operating store in DEA. They had them in other cities, but ours was the last one that was functioning. We eventually closed it down. So when we weren't working in the store, I took it upon myself to go up and conduct surveillance on on Daryl's wife's nail salon. She had a nail salon in a strip plaza a couple miles from their home where they that's the laundering money you know Mm -hmm. so she was she was a an an incredibly beautiful woman a model so i just decided i would just watch her all day you know sometimes you got to take one for the team so that was my did she uh she did she know what was going
2: on she knew what was happening okay she was well aware okay yes um and 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 i'm just curious uh Dar- calvin smith you said he was kind of nerdy uh can you describe him a little better like what do he look like he was was he 5 yeah, foot he
4: was 7 a guy, probably with the same amount of hair as me he was a few years older than i am uh-huh. um but not many not many years older than me mm-hmm. uh, uh clean shaven uh, uh not a not a big guy he was a medium size i would say he was probably around 511 uh, 185 pounds. I mean, mm. he's not this massive imposing figure at all. You yeah, would see, he you he's a nerd.
2: Yeah. It would just kind of blend in. Okay. Glasses, no glasses, glasses.
4: Um, I think he wore glasses at times to read, but not normally just for vision. No. Got it. Got it. Okay. So uh, we're back to the nail salon now. Right. So we're watching the nail salon. We, we, we learned about his house where he lived and we're, we're starting to uncover assets. I mean, this house is beautiful. It's massive. And he's got boats and he's got a Rolls Royce and he drives Mercedes and he's got a Harley. And he's got, I mean, all kinds of toys, you know?
2: How much was he at that time? How much was he making a month at the kind of the height of his?
4: Uh, and I don't know if he can break it down to a monthly income because he manufactured a couple times a year. Okay. So he was probably he was probably bringing home a couple million a year. Okay. A couple million. But this is early '80s,
2: so that's a lot of money. Oh that's... yeah, back
4: when a million dollars, you know, bought you something. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Okay.
4: So, so we're sitting on a we're sitting on a nail salon, sitting on, a, and I'm sitting up there by myself. I'm in the parking lot. I'm sitting in my car, and I'm we're watching the the nail salon, and uh, and all of a sudden, Daryl arrives in the van that he showed up to order the chemicals in. We have never we have not seen this van in probably six or eight months. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, there's the van. So I call, I call, I have to run to a phone, booth, a pay phone. <laughs> but I have a cell phone, run to a payphone. I call the DEA office downtown Atlanta and I say, get, bring me up a bumper beeper as fast as you can. Throw one in a car, get up here. And the bumper beeper is just this magnetic device. It's about this big and it's about this thick. And it's primarily a magnet with a, with a, a transponder, a beeper, a little antenna that sticks out. And again, you got to get Radio Free Europe with the Pac-Man <laughs> device to follow it around. It. So DEA races up to the, to the place with, uh, for me. they got blue lights and sirens racing up the interstate to get to me. And he's in there having lunch. They walk down the strop, uh, shopping plaza. They go in a restaurant and have lunch, he and his wife. And so while he's in there having lunch, that DEA rides – I grab the bumper beeper, I sneak, over, I walk over to the van, I sneak, I'm crawling underneath the van, I'm looking for a place to stick this beeper <laughs> up underneath, where it's going to go, and while I'm there, all of a sudden out of nowhere, here's these two feet standing next to the door, oh boy. and I look over and there's, there's his legs, right there, oh, oh and, I'm, boy. and I'm, I'm pissed, because I'm thinking, all right, surveillance guys, how about... Daryl's coming out of the restaurant. How about Daryl's walking his wife back to the nail salon? Yeah, How what happened? Towards the van? Nobody gave me any heads up. And you are you wearing an earpiece at this point? No, you guys- I've, got a, I've got a portable radio, so I'll like turn it down now. Because- <laughs> <laughs> and I'm 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 laying under the van, so I stick the thing on, and I'm just sitting here. I'm laying on my back on the ground, and I'm yeah. under his van. He's in a pocket <laughs> spot. And I'm thinking, well, holy crap, when he backs out, he's going to notice me laying there. Yeah. You know? And what am I gonna say? Oh, yeah, God bless. Thank God you moved. You know, I mean, what am I gonna say? So <laughs> he does, he backs out of the out of the pocket space in his van and I hang on to the drive shaft. As he backs out, I kind of suspend myself under the van and he drags me back as he backs out of the pocket space. And then when he pulls forward to leave, I just let go and he runs over me. <laughs> now, if he ever looked in his rearview mirror, he'd see this guy laying there, like "Holy crap!" Did he just run him over? But he never <laughs> looked back. And as soon as he left, I got up and. I, and I was quick. Like, that was quick thinking. That was quick thinking. Well, I, I was pretty mad at the surveillance guys, kind of at that point.
2: Speaking of surveillance, that's like uh, you know you see it in the movies, and it looks uh, like glamorous, but it's that's a hard part of the job, right? It's kind of boring. You just sit there all
4: day, and it is. It, but it is a is a perishable skill. And today we've become more dependent on electronic surveillance. We've become more dependent on putting beepers on cars, following things electronically, using satellites and drones. We use those things routinely now, whereas back then we didn't have them. We had to be more, we had to be able to follow people. Yeah. So you would bring a change of clothes, couple of jackets, couple of hats in your car at any time. You could change hats. You could flip stuff around. Guys would rewire their cars so they could shut off one of the headlights. So if you were following people at night, they wouldn't say, hey, the same pair of headlights is behind me all the time. You shut one off so it looks like, oh, it's a different car. This guy's got a headlight out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So but you see, so, so things we did. Yeah
2: so you got this uh so you you get this trans this magnetic transponder so now you've got this
4: van getting being tracked right right we follow it so we follow it to a home maybe a half hour or 45 minutes from his house and it's a home in a very rural well now it's considered a uh suburb of atlanta but back then you might as well have lived in tennessee you know if you were mm-hmm. in atlanta it, was, it seemed that it was that far away but um he, he goes to a he he goes to this house that's on a cul-de-sac in a small neighborhood, and it's a split-level home, three bedroom, two bath, split-level home, uh, on a cul-de-sac. And behind the cul-de-sac, it's a swamp. It's all swamp. Mm. And we, he he pulls into the driveway, goes down. So we grab the number, we do some digging, we do some work, we research the title. He paid one hundred and three thousand dollars in cash for the house. <laughs> So, and this is back and he bought it in like 83 or 82. Mm-hmm. He bought this house. So he's been manufacturing there at least for a year and a half now. W- prior to that, he was in other rental places. But this is the first place he bought. And uh, so we put a, we put a pole camera up. We put a, a, a video camera up on a telephone pole in the cul-de-sac and we aim the camera at his house so mm-hmm. we can see if he comes and goes. Now, unlike today, where you can just wireless internet, this is all before those days. Yeah, we had to microwave the signal. The signal was sent via microwave, so we had to find a place, a line of sight, that we could position a VCR a VCR so we yeah. could record the activities. And the only would place- you, guys,
2: would you guys send in
4: like a crew that would look like the phone company or something that would do yeah. this. Yeah, we should sure do. Yeah. We had our own technical operations division. God. It, the division. It was back then. It was one guy. One guy. Yeah, but, a, but he would
2: go like, in, kind of under the guise of being with the telephone company or something, right? Exactly.
4: We had fake telephone hats, and we'd slap yeah. phone company logos on our vans and drive up there. <laughs> get a ladder out, and it'd be like one guy working and five guys sitting around doing nothing. So we looked legit, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> okay. So, so you point so, you, you yeah. point this camera, right? We point the camera. We beam the signal to a fire lookout tower. There's a tower on the top of a mountain, maybe eight miles away, that it, when you climbed up four stories to the fire tower, you could see like, you, it, it was kind of like Rock, well, I don't know if you're familiar, Rock City in, in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they say from Rock City, you can see like eight states. I don't know how that's oh, wow. possible, but, you, know, so, but <laughs> you could see that from, we are so high up. So we got permission from the, I guess the county owns the fire tower. We put the VCR in the fire tower, and then every single day—Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year—every single day, I would drive up this freaking mountain road, that's barely wide enough for my car. I'd have to climb four stories up the fire tower. In the summer, it was it was bee heaven. There was bees everywhere, and oh. it was. It was was horrible. The winter was icy. It was freezing cold. And I have to have to sit in this fire tower, rewind the VHS tape, and then hit play and fast forward and just watch to see if he showed up. You would do that literally every day? Every single day. Every single day. Wow! And if he showed up, because he came maybe once a week, he'd mow the lawn, collect the mail, do stuff like that. I'd have to save that VHS tape. That's evidence. There he is at the house. Put a new Uh tape in. Got it all over it. And every single day. Was it, so was this house? Was this the meth lab? This house? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So we wow. end up we end up evaluating all his power, his utility records, mm-hmm. and we can see based on our surveillance, based on the videos, based on our observations, nobody lives there.
5: Mm-hmm. He
4: doesn't live there. He shows up once a week, maybe maybe every other week, collects the mail, cuts the grass, does whatever. So nobody lives there. We, we check all the utilities. He doesn't use any water, no water. He's using barely enough electricity to power a refrigerator, mm. right? Barely nothing, barely nothing. And then all of a sudden, he's using enough electricity to light up like Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and he's using <laughs> enough water to fill 50 you know, Olympic swimming pools yeah. all in the same month. So historically, we could see when he had manufactured Wow. But we couldn't predict when he was going to manufacture Wow. But we could tell based on the records, the patterns, that he was cooking that. He was cooking that. So well, we, how, how
2: often, I mean, when he was active, how how long would he be active for? Was it like a day, three days? Couple days
4: like the, a couple oh, days, maybe maybe a week.
2: And he, he would week. be in there or basically Four, around the clock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he'd be in there around the clock making the meth. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so, were there any were there any neighbors like I mean I know you said it was a cul de sac but were there neighbors uh Oh yeah,
4: they, were, they weren't real close. Uh-huh. Uh, they were the houses. We each had about an acre lot, so you had some space. Okay, but, th- but this house backed up to a swamp, so there's nobody behind him, mm-hmm. and there was barely. I don't know that I. I it, and as often as I was, I was there, I can't say that I ever saw a, 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 a neighbor out in the yard or anything. Never saw wow. anybody. Okay. So we, we, we go up there one night, disguised as shrubbery, and we go all around the yard. We look all around the property. We're trying to determine. We know he's cooking there. We can tell by the utility records. We can tell by how he's, he's purchased a house for cash. He's not living there. Nobody's there. We know the purpose of this house. So now we got to figure out how's he doing it. So we scope out the house we contact, I, th- I don't know if we contacted the main the builder of the home or i can't remember we went to town records we got a floor plan of the house now you got to envision this house it's a, it's what we would consider an Atlanta a starter home three bedroom two bath split level so the yard is is set low be- well below the road well below the road so the driveway comes down really steep heads for the front of the house and then goes around to the side of the house. So it has a side-entry garage, two car garage. So when you open a garage door, you drive your your van in, which is where he kept the van, in the garage. You drive your van and you pull your van up to the wall, close the garage door and you go up eight or 10 steps to the first level of the split level. And that first, if you were going the front door of the house, you would park in the driveway, and you would walk around to the front of the house. You'd have to go up eight or 10 steps to enter the house. right? So there was no door on the ground level. Okay. So um, whether you entered through the front door or through the garage, you had to go upstairs. And on the first floor was like a living room, dining room combination with a kitchen. And we're talking maybe 1,500, 1,800 square feet, max, the house. And then you would go from there, if the kitchen was on this side, on the other side of the house, you'd go up more steps, maybe another seven, eight steps to the, to the second level, which would be above the garage. And that's where the bedrooms were. One master bedroom with its own bath, and then a, like a hall bath for the other two bedrooms and the rest of the house. So that was the house. So we're like, okay, is he cooking in the bedrooms? Where is he cooking? And we could see how it backed up to a swamp. We could see all this stuff. But we could also see from the woods, we could see his house, we could see the configuration of ventilation. So we determined he's cooking down in the garage, and it's on the far side of the house. So if the garage door here, you drove your car in, the meth lab was on this side of the house, on the same level as the garage. Got it. So that's where we determined. That's where he's cooking. That's the location. That's what's going on. Uh And because we could determine when he had cooked, but not predict when he could cook, we continued our investigation and continued our surveillance for months until we finally decided, how long do we give this? Are we going to wait for him to cook again? Did did you want it?
2: And we was don't the idea him. to I mean, was the idea to catch him in the act? Is that is
4: that that's better? That's always the best. Okay. That's always the best. Actually, to get him right either after he's done cooking or before he starts, because during the process, it's incredibly okay. volatile.
5: Could be okay. explosive.
4: Yeah. But we were thinking, well, what if he gets in the house and we don't catch it? What if there's a problem with the microwave and the signal does, you know, we, we were thinking all these things. So we decide on one specific day in December of '84. We're gonna let's we're gonna arrest him. That's it. We're gonna kick in the door. So we get search warrants for his home, and the lab site, and for the many we knew of too many warehouses at the time. We're gonna mm-hmm. get search warrants for those as well. And it was pouring. Pour, well, leading up to that, let, let me let me back up. Leading up to that, once we know knew the location of the house and knew where the lab was. We decided to go ahead and do something else that had never been done before. We're going to get a search warrant to break into the house in the middle of the night. We're going to I, we're going to locate the laboratory. We're going to sample and photograph anything that's in it. Then we're going to seal it all back up like we were never there and leave. And we'll see what he's got going on down there. So we went to a federal judge. We got a warrant to break in. So we had to call the, the FBI. Now, DEA and FBI, we don't get along. We're like mm. oil and vinegar. Right, so but we have to call there, guys. I had asked earlier in my career to go to safe penetration school to learn how to penetrate safes, mm-hmm. and to, like locksmith school. But yeah. DA is like, no, Peterson, we don't trust you being able to break into locks. That's probably not a good <laughs> move for us. You're not going. But the FBI had their own little team of lock picking experts. Okay. So they shipped us a like a shoebox. It looked like a shoebox, but it was a camera. You put this. Sh- they had a hole in one end of the box. You put the shoebox up to the, to the door handle and take a picture and it should be identified from markings on the doorknob. And so what, what is the manufacturer of the door? What lock? What So they can figure out what keys to bring, whatever to break in.
5: Mm-hmm. Now
4: we've been watching this place for months. We know that nobody lives there. So we go out there again, one night at like two in the morning. We don't, we don't involve the local police department. We don't want to compromise anything. So we've got agents, on stationary and moving surveillance within a few miles, just in case a marked unit comes in, you know, I mean, Give gives a heads up. So we're going to go creepy crawly the place disguised as shrubbery. We're going to break in. So we drop off the, the little FBI safe penetration team. They walk up to the front door and just as they start picking a lock, the front lights come on. Oh boy. they are all on a timer. Oh. So, you know I mean? so, but they freaked out and they ran away. And I'm like, listen, dudes, there's nobody in the house. I've been watching this place for, for months. I'm yeah. telling you, there's nobody in it. The lights went on. Um, I don't care if the lights went on. Get your ass <laughs> back over there. And let's open this door. So they did, finally. They got in. They open the door. And they leave. And then we go in. So now mm-hmm. we go up the front steps. Go in the front door. There's a kitchen over here. Living room here. The stairs over here. goes up over the garage. We, we search the whole place. Nobody's home. We don't want to turn any lights on because we don't want to alert the neighbors at 2 in the morning. There's, there's activity there. I don't know if they're used to that, but we don't want to do that. So we're using flashlights. We're looking all around. We go down to the garage. The van is in the garage. The door of the garage door is closed, but the van is pulled straight ahead into a wall. There's a wall there. Mm. We're like, well, wait a minute. Where's the lab? There's no lab in this garage got to be behind that wall behind the wall how do you get there so we're looking for trapdoors. one of the guys had this great idea It was like five of us in the house by now yeah um one of the guys gets this great idea i'll bet you there's a trap door under the carpet upstairs so we go up to the thing we rip up the wall-to-wall carpet looking for a trap door there's no trap door there <laughs> so we put all the carpet back and here i can just remember vividly vacuuming this guy's house at five in the morning to pick up all the rug remnants that we had done by 10. And I'm thinking, I don't vacuum my own place. And I'm vacuuming this golfer's house. So we vacuum all this stuff up. And then one of our tech guys, one of the guys that installs the cameras, one of our tech guys, he's down in the garage and he's just staring at the wall. And he goes, let me ask you, why would you have double studs here and double studs there and everywhere else, single studs? I'm not Bob Vila. I have no idea. I don't know. And goes. (laughs) So he walks up and he's looking. He goes. He pulls out screws on the double studs, and that whole section of the wall comes out. Wow. And it leads to a doorway with another locked door. So we got to call the thieves to come back out again and pick this lock. Wow. And it takes them forever. I was like, I was just ready to kick it in myself, but they picked it up and walked in. How deep into how
2: deep into the garage is this? Like this when you remove.
4: Well, th- I mean, envision your garage, you pull the van in enough to close the door and the van's like a foot from the wall. Yeah. Well, this, this actually, the basement of this house was the entire length of the house. It was oh, just wow. walled off to make it look like maybe there's a crawl space over there or there's nothing on that side.
2: Okay. So it was the entire so, space of the bottom of the house, basically. Yes. Yes. Okay.
4: And That, that lab site was probably 20 by 40 feet in, in size. And it's got linoleum on the floor, on the ceiling, on the walls. It it was a pharmaceutical-quality laboratory. Down to great pride in his meth. (laughs) And he had all this equipment and gear. He had round-bottom flasks. He had heating mantles. He had all types of of condensation, uh, condensing tubes. I mean, it looked like something you'd see out of the cartoon uh, Dexter's lab. You know what I mean? Wow. It was pretty fascinating. So we took pictures of all this crap. And we sampled some of the chemicals that were left over. We found some of those. We sampled, took samples of all that. We sealed the house back up, my vacuum. And we ended up, we left, and we went and had everything analyzed. And we could prove, all right, well, there's some, we swabbed the inside of some of the uh, flasks, and we, we did samples of different things. And, and through our lab's analysis, they could prove that not only did we have chemicals there used in the manufacturing, that the equipment that was there at one time had manufactured meth because there was meth residue in several of the samples we took. Mm. So then we decided we're going to take Daryl down. We're going to arrest him. We're going to do it. And when the day came, I went with the team that hit the lab site, and other guys went to the main house. Now, by now, I have a senior partner. And my senior partner has been working at the storefront before I got there. He, he, he is a squared away, articulate and t- You never guess he's a DEA agent. He looked, he <laughs> and his wife at the time, we used to call him Ken and Barbie. Cause they look like perfect, perfect couple, perfect hair, everything. I mean, <laughs> DEA guys were like, well, look at me. I mean, you know, so, so ter- his name's Terry. Terry goes to the main house to go arrest Daryl. I go to the lab site. I know nobody's there. But we're gonna bust it open. I know where the lab is. We're gonna get in there. We're gonna dismantle the lab. Daryl's not home. Nobody's wow. home. And it is pouring rain. This Pour is 84. Rain. This is 1984, right? December of 84, yes. December 84. Okay. Yep. So we bust the lab, we bust the house, we bust the lab. And in anticipation of all this happening, the the management alerted all the media. I mean, this was gonna be a big thing. Mm-hmm. This was probably one of the—to this day, it holds the record as the most l- lucrative in, in terms of asset seizures, in, t- in terms of making a profit, probably the most profitable domestic meth lab in U.S. history.
2: So I have some stats here. Uh, 77 pounds of amphetamines worth $3.5 million were discovered at this—what uh, they described as a mini-warehouse— I will tell uh, you about that.
4: Hold on. Yeah, there's, oh, a, story okay. there's oh, okay. a story behind so it. So, not only do we seize this house, we seize the lab. It takes us three days to dismantle the laboratory, to take it all apart. We brought in chemists from Miami. DEA, our, our laboratory for Atlanta was in Miami. DEA chemists from Miami fly up. They help us dismantle everything, neutralize any chemicals out of there so we're not injured, we're not hurt. Take, took it all apart. Took us three days to take it all apart that's how that's how significant it was wow in the meantime we got the US marshals and DEA inventorying the entire contents of his home because we're seizing his house we're seizing everything all his toys everything mm. we can't find his rolls royce his rolls royce is not around we're like where's his rolls we found out in the meantime through some checking that he's in vegas mm. so uh, we called DEA Las Vegas. They go and arrest Daryl for us. They pick him up. They grab him. Him and his wife. So Daryl's in custody. We're searching the house. We're inventorying the stuff, and that takes that takes three days as well. I mean, and again, it's porn ring. We can't find the we can't find the the Rolls Royce. So I come up with this great idea. I'm going to go door to door and knock on the neighbors' houses and ask if anybody's seen a Rolls Royce. <laughs> What do you? You never know what you ask. So it, sa- it go- says
2: here that in Atlanta, you guys seized there were two homes. I guess one was a drug house, a right. Rolls Royce, a Mercedes, a Porsche, and seventy ounces of gold and assets in several bank accounts. That's what it says.
4: Yes, we seized. We seized a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I go to the neighbor's house and I knock on a neighbor's door, and this woman answers. Very nice woman. Very elegantly dressed. A professional. Turns out unbeknownst to me at the time she's a realtor but i don't i don't know that and i said hey i identify myself got my raid gear on all my id all that crap we're you know we're next door at your neighbor's house i don't know how well you know your neighbor and and well he's like you know he's a nice guy he's a he's he's a card player yeah well (laughs) no not really so we said have you seen the rolls she goes it's in my garage excuse me she said he came to us a couple weeks ago and said I don't have any room right now. I can't put it somewhere. I'm trying to get a location to put. Can I store my Rolls Royce in your garage? So I said, sure. I have a three car garage. I only have two cars. My husband, and I. so she's hanging on to his Rolls. So we're like, well, do you have anything else of his? Do you have his motorcycles? Do you have his boat? But we got his Rolls Royce. What, funny side. He, did go, did oh, he know?
2: On, did he know? Did he know that you were coming? Maybe, and he wanted no. to keep. No, he just wanted yeah. to keep it. Okay, okay.
4: So funny side story, a couple of years later, I sell my house, my first house that I ever bought in Atlanta. I sell that and buy a new house. When I'm looking for my, when I'm looking to sell my old house, I, I find a realtor. She comes to my house to sit down with me and my future ex-wife and we, we figure out how we're going to do, you know, sign the contract and she's staring at me and she goes, I know you from somewhere. And I said, "Well, that's not a good sign. That's not good for you." And she's like, "You, I had Daryl Smith's Rolls Royce in my driveway, in my garage." So she ends up being my realtor. I was just like, "What a small world!" I mean, yeah. I'm funny. She's gonna be a great deal, by the way. Anyways, so now we're searching. We're dismantling the lab. We're searching the house, and we got a guy, a DEA agent, there. Who we find our bumper beeper from the van. When we got the van out of the garage of the lab site, a bumper beeper was gone. Mm. And we're like, well, did it fall off? You know, what happened to it? We find it in a cabinet over his refrigerator in his kitchen. He thought the bikers were tracking him uh. to find out where the lab was. He didn't think it was us. He thought he was being chased by the outlaws. Wow. Wow. So he he snipped the antenna off and dismant- and took it apart, but he had all the components in the, in his in his cabinet <laughs> over his, his over his uh, over his uh, refrigerator. So we have this DEA guy there. He is like f- four weeks away from retirement. I mean, he's not doing anything. He's sitting yeah. on a couch watching VHS tapes of everything. Daryl had this massive collection of pornography on VHS tapes. <laughs> And this guy was convinced that there might be some evidentiary value to all these tapes. He needs to watch them over and over and over again just to see. (laughs) So he's sitting there watching the porno things the whole time. And he looked. I come walking in, and I'm like, uh, what was his name? His name was Bill. I want to say his name was Bill. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Bill. I said, Bill, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm watching this for evidence But I'm like, there's no evidence. I he's like, I'll oh, leave me alone. I'm like, all right. Well, he, but I walk him by again, because all I do was smoke cigarettes and sit on a couch. Hmm. And he goes, look up there. Look up at the roof. I said, OK. He said, see that big high arch in the ceiling? You see that? Yeah, I say, yeah, yeah, I see that, Bill. He goes, there's water leak. See the water damage on the ceiling? There's water coming in the, the, the roof. I'm like, I don't care. It's not my house. It's going to be the government. He's like, it's going to be the government's house. I need to find the leak. I was like, all right, well, that sounds perfect for you to do. That sounds like a great job for you, Bill. Go up in the attic and find a leak. So Bill goes up into the attic. And he accesses the, I don't even know how he got him into the attic, but he gets into the attic and he realizes the leak is against the far wall where the roof line hits the walls. Mm. Way over there is where the leak is coming through from the rain. So he starts walking on, on the joists in the attic. Mm-hmm. They're all spaced, and it had blown insulation. So it's a, a beautiful sea of untouched insulation from the stairs or the whatever, the, however he accessed it, to the far wall. And he starts walking on the joist. and God bless, he's in his 50s. He gets about 10 steps away, and he falls. Oh, boy. And thank God he didn't fall through the ceiling. <laughs> When he fell, he falls on a box that was completely concealed in the blown insulation. And Mm -hmm. in the box was a receipt for a mini warehouse that had the 70 kilos or 70 pounds of meth. We never would have found that ever. Wow. Tell me there's no God. Yeah.
2: So, So there was a whole separate warehouse. We didn't know about. Yep. Wow. And then uh, you obviously go and, and
4: uh... We obviously go and seize the dope. Yeah, we get a yeah. search warrant for it. So yeah. what
2: was in there? What was it where how far was it? Where was that?
4: You know, I can't even recall. It couldn't have been that far because his warehouses were north in the north part of the city. They weren't that spread out. So it had to be somewhere north of downtown. I don't I don't remember. It was in a like a um uh a footlocker mm. chest, like a footlocker chest. It was full of, of, of meth. Already manufactured, so it had to be a couple months old. Wow! You know how long is, so, how long is meth?
2: How long when is meth talks. good for? How long well, does it last?
4: Well, it depends on how you package it up and how well it's sealed. It can it can uh, deteriorate over time if it has access to air and moisture. So if you keep it all sealed and keep it tight, you know it could last months. You know, you figure it takes a kilo of coke from the Bolivian jungle. Months to get to the streets of America mm-hmm. and as long as you keep it dry and sealed up it will last but you break the seal you cut open the packaging and it gets exposed to air and moisture it will begin to break down rapidly
2: Wow so now so, Daryl Calvin Smith aka the real Walter white he's arrested he's in Vegas do you guys extradite him back to Atlanta yes
4: we bring him back we bring him back to Atlanta and he agrees to cooperate with us. Let me tell you, during my career, I put over a 1,000 people in federal prison. Wow. All but two have cooperated. Mm. In the federal system, at least while I was still with DEA, federal laws have changed. Sentences have begun become less than they were. Um, in the federal system, everybody cooperates. Everybody snitches in the federal system. Because you're gonna get—if you're you're not—you're gonna get crushed, right? You know, punishment. So So
5: what
2: did what did you guys what did you want from him? You wanted info about the outlaws because they're the ones doing it.
4: Absolutely. So he tells us this is where we learn the story of how we met him on the side of the road on I-85. He tells us all this, Mm. and he says once he started making meth, this is how it worked. He would get a phone call. And they would say, "Hey, Daryl, it's us, the Outlaws." They wouldn't identify themselves like that, but I'm, <laughs> paraphrasing, right? yeah. I'm paraphrasing. They would say, "We need felonious quantities of controlled substances." You know, uh, yeah. again, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so they would say, "We need—I don't know—50 kilos, 100 kilos, whatever it was they needed—and we're going to give you 30 days. We need—we th- need it in 30 days." <laughs> Daryl would get to work, go to the lab site, fire up the lab, cook, 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 cook. cook. Whatever didn't get distributed to the outlaws then, he'd put in a mini warehouse and save for later. So he would, you know, the batches would be significant, several hundred pounds at a time, but the bikers wouldn't need all several hundred pounds at a time. So he'd give it to them in, in phases. But he would cook as, as few times as possible to limit the chances of him getting caught. If he went and cooked small quantities every week, better, better chance of getting caught. Than if you cook a massive amount three to four times a year, Mm -hmm. you know. So when he got the call, they would say, "I need fifty pounds or whatever it is. Let's say fifty pounds. I need fifty pounds of meth." So he on that day he would go either to the warehouse where he had his stash or he'd manufacture it if he was low enough. He'd cook it up. He'd get like a thirty day or a couple week head start. On the day it was due for delivery, he would drive to downtown Atlanta. He would go to the Greyhound bus station. He would take the dope, which was in a duffel bag. He put it in a duffel bag. He'd go into the bus station with the dope, put it in a locker, lock it up, leave it in, leave the duffel bag in the locker, lock it up. He'd go down the street, uh, probably a half mile or so from the bus station, was a, is this iconic restaurant you might have seen on the Food Network called the called the Varsity. I call it the Varsity, but everybody else calls it the Varsity. And the Varsity is a hot dog joint. It's a hot dog place. They sell hot right across the street from Georgia Tech. In fact, I think it's a Georgia Tech dropout that started it. Now it's a multi-billion dollar place. (laughs) But uh, he would go to Varsity. He would sit at a specific table at a specific time. And he would bring us, he'd get two hot dogs, a frosted orange, which is kind of like an orange slushy drink. Very, very good, by the way. So he would take his hot dogs and his frosted orange. He'd go sit at the table. At a specific time, he'd take the key and put it in the napkin dispenser on the table. Then he'd go to the bathroom. He'd stay in the bathroom for two minutes, come out, reach back in the napkin dispenser, different key. Wow. He'd go to the bus station, open that locker, duffel bag full of cash. Other than that one time, on the side of the interstate, when his bike broke down, he never met another human being ever in the decades that he cooked for them. Wow. That's so crazy. He um, couldn't give us anybody. He cooperated. We didn't believe him. So we, we polygraphed him. Uh huh. Now, m- you can question a polygraph all you want. A polygraph is only as good as the polygraph examiner. And oh, yeah. I can tell you, DEA, we had the best. We had wow. the best. So if the guy came to us and said, according to the machine, he's inconclusive, because one of three things, he's deceptive, he's truthful, or it's inconclusive, I can't tell. If you use the FBI, every time I use the FBI, they were inconclusive. I was like, why do I even use you? So, but our guy would say, I never got an inconclusive for them. He would say, the machine says he's inconclusive, but I'm telling you, he's lying. That was good mm-hmm. enough for me. I mean, this guy was that skilled. Wow. So the
2: outlaws were, uh, they covered themselves real well. Obviously, Yes, they did. Yes, yeah. they
4: did. So wow. then, so then Daryl, co- he cooperates, he, sur- he surrenders all the assets that we know about. Now, how many assets did he have before bank accounts? To this day, we'll never know. Mm. How much money did he have squirreled away? Never know.
2: Don't there was a there was a guy named uh, ironically Thomas Cash, uh, DEA yeah, agent yeah. in Atlanta. He, in you know him? he was the boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, he said that uh, even though this guy Daryl Calvin Smith, aka the real Walter White, he was never convicted of any crime. He wanted him held without bond because he was a substantial flight risk, as well as uh, the fact that his wife, this pretty model he was married to, she was a British citizen, like you said, and she had a valid passport. And they had yep. a ton of wealth, so they thought maybe they'd roll, uh, but,
4: they, but they didn't. So no. uh... we dismissed charges against his wife mm-hmm. to get his cooperation. And we gave him—he entered a guilty plea, and the, under the plea he entered, the most jail time he could get, I think, was 10 years, mm-hmm. right? Back then, that's where the sentencing guidelines were. The judge sentenced him to nine years. He got nine years, just below the maximum amount. So he goes to jail, and, and about a, less than a year later, he escapes from federal prison. <laughs> he escapes. He comes Just- back to Atlanta and nearly beats his defense attorney to death with a shovel. Wow. And then he shoots him. But the attorney survives. Are you kidding me? No. And then, so he flees again, goes to Tennessee, robs a bank. And he ends up being caught by the marshals after the bank robbery. Oh my God! Wait, how does he get out of a federal prison? Well, he, you know, federal. This there is, are several. There are. This is the craziest wealth. part of this. This is the craziest part of this. This is where he becomes Walter White. Well, this is where well, Walt. You remember Walter has this conversion from a yeah. like chemistry teacher to whatever. Um, Just like say a bad my ass. name, whatever his yeah. name was there. Yeah. yeah um i can't sounds for an h but i can't remember what they call him and uh, but and daryl does the same thing he goes from this nerdy medical student to this ruthless i would say killer but he didn't kill the lawyer he just screwed him up really bad
2: wait so he was just pissed at this defense attorney for getting so much we don't know what the reason is we don't know do we know how he escaped federal prison? That's hard to do, right? Well, see,
4: there's, you know, there's different levels of prisons.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, There's Supermax, like Colorado, and yeah. there's regular prisons like they have at various places in the country. And then even, to me, the most frightening federal prison I was ever in was in Atlanta, the Atlanta Penitentiary. That was a federal prison. That was terrifying, mm-hmm. terrifying place to be in. Mm-hmm. I went in there a couple times to interview people and I was terrified every moment I was in there because I knew I was the only person in there without a weapon because every one of those inmates have got a shank or something. So he was assigned, I think, because of his cooperation, because of all his things, because he was such a nerd. He was assigned not to a supermax. or he I think he got assigned to a camp. Even the Atlanta Penitentiary, which is frightening inside, on the outside of the walls, they had a camp. And it's literally like tent city mm. where the inmates sleep and stay. And they you know, there's like almost a nothing fence around it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was Heisen- Heisenberg the- by the way. Heisenberg. Heisenberg. Yeah. Heisenberg. Yeah.
4: And he so uh, camp, he was in a camp and he jumped over the fence. And he walked away.
2: So he gets, he walks away and he gets all the way back to Metro Atlanta and he beats the crap out of his defense attorney. And he, did you say he shoots
4: him? Yes.
2: Wow. Um, so this, and the defense attorney survived. So. Yes. Uh, and so I thought
4: Darrell should get consideration in a sentencing, get a sentence reduced because he shot a defense attorney. So I thought that was probably a good thing for society, but that's a joke. That's three, a joke. That is a
2: joke. <laughs> yeah, that is a joke. So, mm-hmm. so Daryl. so they, how, how long after he shoots the defense attorney, do they then catch him again?
4: I, I want to say it was like, Six or eight months? Really? He was on the— Wow. And and yeah. now what? And then what? What happened once yeah, He got resentenced to escape and assault, attempted murder. So I, I don't know. And, and he's still got to do the rest of his nine years or whatever with DEA's charge. So he goes away to prison. And I'm not exactly sure when he was released. But you figure this was 1985, 1986, somewhere in this when all the shooting and all this crap— So even if he got, you know he's not gonna get life. Even Mm -hmm. if he got twenty more years, he'd be out by the year two thousand. He was probably released from federal prison in nineteen ninety something.
2: Wow. Be wild to find out what this guy's Yeah,
4: it'd be wild to find out what he's up to today. You have no idea, right? Well, I do have some ideas. I don't wanna put I don't wanna say, but I, I know what I know he's he lives in North Carolina, and that's the best I'm gonna tell you. Wow. but So he's alive. He's still alive. He alive. He's-, he's remarried. So I guess Denise left him <laughs> probably when he was in prison or on the run. I, I don't really know when, but he's remarried. Wow. He lives in North Carolina. I wonder if he's ever seen Breaking Bad. No, I'm sure he is. And I'm, th- I'm sure he's thinking, how did I not be able to cash in on this? This is like my story. <laughs> and see, DEA would always deny that because DEA, then we would have to be get permission and approvals. Hell, I never realized it until I saw the show, and I was like, "Wait a minute! There's just too many similarities." How, because this was a big thing in DEA. Yeah, this became a this was a to this day still holds a record. This was a huge, huge case for DEA because not only did we did we have groundbreaking legal decisions, we got search warrants, sneak and peek warrants, we put beepers on crap. I mean, we did things that no one had really ever done before. Yeah. So it was groundbreaking in a number of ways.
2: And uh you don't think uh he's still involved in uh like a criminal
4: element, do you? Uh you know, he's he's my age now or he's older than me now. So you know, I mean, to me, all prisons do is make you a better criminal. But yeah. I, who knows? Who not? Yeah. You know, he never lost his medical license to my knowledge, really. Well, yeah, because he never practiced medicine. So he never lost his license. We didn't file anything with the medical boards because he had never practiced. But he does wow. have he does have the education. Now, for all I know, he, he's, he's an OBGYN guy somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> you know? I have no
5: idea.
2: Wow. Well, Steve Peterson, you are uh, an incredible storyteller. For those who don't know, Steve Peterson was a senior special agent of the United States Department of Justice, the Drug Enforcement Administration otherwise known to you as the DEA uh, he was there for nearly 3 decades at the time of his retirement was the most senior DEA street agent in the world uh, he's now a South Carolina private investigator
4: and oh, well, uh, i'm not a private investigator oh i'm not i'm not a south Carolina. no i am a i am a, an investigative consultant investigative consultant okay that's what i am i did not go to get my certification from the state and do any yeah. of that crap I'm just a guy who asks questions. That's all You're, I am.
2: I love it. I love it. They need to make a show about Steve Peterson. But uh, as you guys can tell, he is uh, the real deal. He was in the trenches for the DEA for all that time. Uh, what a wild, incredible story. Any uh, any final thoughts, Steve-O? Uh,
4: hey, I'm glad I had this time with you, Joel. I hope you enjoy your summer of uh, traveling. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, until next time.
2: Love you, America. Love you, Boston. Love you, Atlanta and everywhere in this (laughs)